Section 7 of The Art of Music, Volume 2. Classicism and Romanticism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Art of Music, Volume 2. Classicism and Romanticism by the National Society of Music. The Viennese Classics, Haydn and Mozart. Part 2, Chapters 3 and 4 3. The early history of the development of the symphony is essentially that of the development of the sonata, which we have described in the last chapter. When Joseph Haydn actually came upon the scene as composer, the term symphony or sinfonia had been applied to compositions for orchestra, though these pieces bore little resemblance to modern productions. They were usually written in three movements, two of them being rather quick and lively, with a slow one between, and were scored for eight parts, four strings, two oboes or two flutes, and two cordes de chasse, or horns. Often the flutes or oboes were used simply to reinforce the strings, while the horns sustained the harmony. The figured bass was still in use, often transferred, however, to the viol de gamba, and the director used the harpsichord. The treatment of the parts was still crude and stiff, showing little feeling for the tone color of the instruments, balancing of parts, or variety of treatment. The internal structure also was still very uncertain. The first movement, now usually written in strict sonata form, did not then uniformly contain the two contrasting themes, nor the codas and episodes of the modern schools, and the working out section and recapitulation were seldom clearly defined. Even in the poorest examples, however, the sonata scheme was generally vaguely present, and in the best, definitely marked. We must not lose sight, however, of the epoch-making work of Stamitz and his associates at Mannheim, both in the fixing of symphonic form and the advancement of instrumental technique. Stamitz's Opus One appeared, it will be recalled, in 1751. Dittersdorf's emulation of the Mannheim symphonies began about 1761. The intervening decade was a period of experiment and constant improvement. Haydn, though his first symphony, composed in 1759, showed none of the new influence, must have been cognizant of the advance. Haydn's first symphony, written when he was 27, is described by Paul as being a small work in three movements, for two violins, viola, bass, two hautboys, and two horns, cheerful and unpretending in character. From this time on, his experiments in the symphonic form were continuous, and more than one hundred examples are credited to him. He was so situated as to be able to test his work by actual performance. To this fortunate circumstance may be attributed the fact that he made great improvements in orchestration, and that he gained steadily in clearness of outline, variety of treatment, and enlargement of ideas. In five years, Haydn composed thirty symphonies besides many other pieces, his reputation spread far beyond the bounds of Austria, and the official Gazette of Vienna called him our national favorite. His seclusion furthered his originality and versatility, and his history seems a singularly marked example of growth from within, rather than growth according to the currents of contemporary taste. By 1790 the number of symphonies had reached 110, and the steps of his development can be clearly traced. There are traces of the old traditions in the doubling of the parts, sometimes throughout an entire movement, in the neglect of the wind instruments, sometimes for the entire adagio, 
and in long solo passages for bassoon or flute. Such peculiarities mark most of the symphonies up to 1790. Among these crudities, however, are signs of a steady advance in other respects. In the all-important first movement, he more and more gave the second theme its rights, felt for new ways of developing the themes themselves, and elaborated the working-out section. The coda began to make its appearance, and the figured bass was abandoned. He established the practice of inserting the minuet between the slow movement and the finale, thus setting the example for the usual modern practice. The middle strings and wind instruments gradually grew more independent, the musical ideas more cultivated and refined, his orchestration clearer and more buoyant. His work is cheerful and gay, showing solid workmanship, sometimes deep emotion, rarely poetry. Under his hands the symphony as an art form gained stability, strength, and a technical perfection which was to carry the deeper message of later years and the message of the great symphonic writers who followed him. During Haydn's comparative solitude at Eisenstadt, however, a wonderful youth had come into the European musical world, had absorbed with the facility of genius everything that musical science had to offer, had learned from Haydn what could be done with the symphony as he'd learned from Gluck what could be done with opera, and had outshone and outdistanced every composer living at the time. What Haydn was able to give to Mozart was rendered back to him with abundant interest. Mozart made use of a richer and more flexible orchestration, achieved greater beauty and poignancy of expression, and Haydn, while retaining his individuality, still shows marked traces of this noble influence. The early works of Haydn were far in advance of his time, and were highly regarded, but they do not reveal the complete artist, and they have been almost entirely superseded in public favour by the London symphonies, composed after Mozart's death. In these he reaches heights he had never before attained, not only in the high degree of technical skill, but in the flood of fresh and genial ideas, and in new, impressive harmonic progressions. The method of orchestration is much bolder and freer. The parts are rarely doubled. The bass and viola have their individual work. The parts for the wind instruments are better suited to their character, and greater attention is paid to musical nuances. In these last works, Haydn arrived at that spiritualization of music, which makes the art a vehicle not only for intellectual ideas, but for deep and earnest emotion. Parallel with the growth of the symphonic form and its variety of treatment came also a real growth of the orchestra. The organization of 1750, consisting of four strings and four wind instruments, had become in 1791 a group of 35 or 40 pieces, consisting of, besides the strings, two flutes, two oboes, two bassoons, two horns, two trumpets, and drums. To these were sometimes added clarinets and occasionally special instruments such as the triangle or cymbals. Thus, by the end of the century, the form of the symphony, according to modern understanding, was practically established and the orchestra organized nearly according to its present state. Haydn represents the last stage of the preparatory period, and he was in a very genuine and literal sense the founder, and to some degree the creator of the modern symphony. The string quartet had its birth almost simultaneously with the symphony, and is also the child of Haydn's genius. Its ancestors are considered by Jan to be the divertimenti and cassation, designed for table music, serenades and such entertainments, and written often in four or five movements for four wind instruments, wind instruments with strings, or even for clavier. 
This species of composition was transferred curiously enough to two violins, viola and bass, the latter being in time replaced by the cello. This combination of instruments, so easily available for private use, appealed especially to Haydn, and his later compositions for it are still recognized as models. The quartet, like the symphony, is based on the sonata form and developed gradually in a manner similar to the larger work. Haydn's first attempt in this species was made at the age of 23, and 83 quartets are numbered among his catalogued works. The earlier ones are very like the work of Boccherini, and consist of five short movements with two minuets. As Haydn progressed, his tendency was to make the movements fewer and longer. After quartet number 44, the four-movement form is generally used, and his craftsmanship grows more delicate. Gradually, he filled the rather stiff and formal outline with ideas that are graceful and charming, even though they may sound somewhat elementary to modern ears. He recognized the fact that in the quartet each individual part must not be treated as solo, nor yet should the others be made to supply a mere accompaniment to the remainder. Each must have its role, according to the capacity of the instrument and the balance of parts. The best of Haydn's quartets exhibit not only a well-established form and a fine perception of the relation of the instruments, but also the more spiritual qualities, tenderness, playfulness, pathos. He is not often romantic, neither is there any trace of far-fetched mannerisms or fads. He gave the form a life and freshness which at once secured its popularity, even though the more scientific musicians of his day were inclined to regard it with suspicion as a trifling innovation. Nevertheless, it was the form which, together with the symphony, was to attest the greatness of Mozart and Beethoven, and it was from Haydn that Mozart at least learned its use. It is impossible to estimate rightly Haydn's service to music without taking into account one of his most striking and original characteristics, his use of simple tunes and folk songs. Much light has been thrown on this phase of his genius by the labors of a Croatian scholar, F. X. Kuhat, and the results of his work have been given to the English-speaking world by Mr. Haddell. As early as 1762, in his D major symphony composed at Eisenstadt, Haydn began to use folk songs as themes, and he continued to do so in symphonies, quartets, divertimenti, cantatas, and sacred music, to the very end of his career. In this respect he was unique among composers of his day. No other contemporaneous writer thought it fitting or beautiful to work rustic tunes into the texture of his music. Mozart is witty with the ease of a man of the world, quite different from the naive drollery of Haydn, whose humour, though perhaps a trifle light and shallow, is always mobile, fresh, and gay. It is pointed out, moreover, by the writers above mentioned that the shapes of Haydn's melodic phrases are not those of the German, but of the Croatian folk song, and that the rhythms are correspondingly varied. Eisenstadt lies in the very centre of a Croatian colony, and Rohau, Haydn's birthplace, has also a Croatian name. Many of its inhabitants are Croatian, and a name strikingly similar to Haydn's was of frequent occurrence in that region. Add to this the fact that his music is saturated with tunes which have all the characteristics, both rhythmic and melodic, of the Croatian, that many tunes known to be of that origin are actually employed by him, and the presumption in favour of his Croatian inheritance is very strong. But Haydn's speech, like that of every genius, was not only that of his race, but of the world. He had the heart of a rustic poet, unspoiled by a decayed civilization. 
Like Wordsworth, he used the speech of a whole nation and lived to work out all that was in him. Although almost entirely self-taught, he mastered every scientific principle of musical composition known at his time. He was able to compose for the people without pandering to what was vicious or ignorant in their taste. He identified himself absolutely with secular music and gave it a status equal to the music of the church. He took the idea of the symphony and quartet, while it was yet rather formless and chaotic, floating in the musical consciousness of the period as salt floats in the ocean, drew it from the surrounding medium and crystallized it into an art form. Something has already been said concerning Haydn's popularity in England and the genuine appreciation accorded him in that country. Haydn himself remarked that he did not become famous in Germany until he had gained a reputation elsewhere. Even in his old age, he remembered rather pathetically the animosity of certain of the Berlin critics who had used him very badly in early life, condemning his compositions as hasty, trivial, and extravagant. It's only another proof that Beckmesser never dies. Haydn was his own best critic, though a modest one, when he said, quote, Some of my children are well-bred, some ill-bred, and here and there there is a changeling among them. I know that God has bestowed a talent upon me, and I thank him for it. I think I have done my duty and been of use in my generation by my works. End quote. He rises above all his contemporaries except Mozart, as a lighthouse rises above the waves of the sea. With Mozart and Beethoven, he formed the immortal trio whose individual work, each with its own quality and its own weight, are the completion and the sum of the first era of orchestral music. 4. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart Radically different from the career of Haydn is that of Mozart, which indeed has no parallel in the annals of music or any other art, it partakes so much of the marvellous as to defy and to upset all our notions of the growth of creative genius. What Haydn learned by years of endeavour and experience, Mozart acquired as if by instinct. The forms evolved by the previous generation, that new elegance of melodic expression, the finesse of articulation and the principles of organic unity, all these were a heritage upon which he entered with full cognizance of their meaning and value. It was as though he had dreamed these things in a previous existence. They made up for him a language which he used more easily than other children use their mother tongue. It is a fact that he learned to read music earlier than words. What common children express in infantile prattle, this marvel of a boy expressed in musical sounds. At three he attempted to emulate his sister at clavier playing, and actually picked out series of pleasing thirds. At four, he learned to play minuets which his father taught him, as in fun, a half-hour sufficed for one. And at five, he composed others like them, himself. At six, these compositions merited writing down, which his father did, and we have the dated notebook as evidence of these first stirrings of genius. At the age of seven, Mozart appeared before the world as a composer. The two piano sonatas with violin accompaniment, which he dedicated to the Princess Victoire, have all the attributes of finished musical workmanship, and even if his father retouched and corrected these and other early works, the performance, as that of a child, is nonetheless remarkable. The extraordinary training and the wise guidance of the father, a highly educated musician, broad-minded and progressive, were the second great advantage accruing to Mozart, whose genius was thus led from the beginning into proper channels. Leopold Mozart, himself under the influence of the Mannheim School, naturally imparted to his son all the peculiarities of their style. 
Through him also the influence of Emmanuel Bach became an early source of inspiration. Pure, simple melody with a natural, obvious harmonic foundation was the musical ideal to which Mozart aspired from the first. Nevertheless, the study of counterpoint was never neglected in the training which his father gave him, though it was not until later, under the instruction of Padre Martini, that he came to appreciate its full significance and elevated beauty. With Mozart, the musical supremacy of Germany, first asserted by the instrumental composers of Mannheim and Berlin, is confirmed and extended to the field of vocal music and the opera. Mozart could accomplish this task only by virtue of his broad cosmopolitanism, which, like that of Gluck, enabled him to gather up in his grasp the achievements of the most diverse schools. To this cosmopolitanism he was predisposed by the circumstances of his birth as well as of his early life. The geographical position of Salzburg, where he was born in 1756, was in a sense a strategic one. Situated in the southernmost part of Germany, it was exposed to the influence of Italian taste, inhabited by a sturdy German peasantry and bourgeoisie. Its sympathies were on the side of German art, and the musicians at court were, at the time of Mozart's birth, almost without exception Germans. Yet the echoes of the cultural life, not only of Vienna, Munich, and Mannheim, but of Milan, Naples, and Paris, reached the narrow confines of this mountain fastness, this citadel of intolerant Catholicism. But Mozart's cosmopolitanism was broader than his. He was but six years of age, gifted with a marvellous power of absorption, and impressionable to a degree, when his father began with him and his eleven-year-old sister, also highly talented and already an accomplished pianist, the three years' journey, or concert tour, as we should say today, which took them to Munich, to Vienna, to Mannheim, to Brussels, Paris, London, and The Hague. They played before the sovereigns in all these capitals, and were acclaimed prodigies such as the world had never seen. How assiduously young Mozart emulated the music of all the eminent composers he met is seen from the fact that four concertos until recently supposed to have been original compositions were simply rearrangements of sonatas by Schobert, Honauer, and Eckhart. Similarly, in London, he carefully copied out a symphony by C. F. Abel until recently reckoned among his own works, and a copy of a symphony by Michael Haydn, his father's colleague in Salzburg, has also been found among his manuscripts. But the most powerful influence to which he submitted in London was that of Johann Christian Bach, who determined his predilection for Italian vocal style and Italian opera. Already in 1770, when he and his father were upon their second artistic journey, he tried his hand both at Italian and German opera, La Finta Semplice and Bastien und Bastiana, and it is significant that during their production he was already exposed to the theories of Gluck, who brought out his Alceste in that year. But it must be said that neither of the two youthful works shows any traits of these theories. The first of them failed of performance in Vienna, and was not produced until later at Salzburg. The other was presented under private auspices at the estate of the famous Dr. Mesmer of magnetic fame. But in the same year, Mozart, then fourteen years of age, made his debut in Italian opera seria with Mitradite at Milan. This was the climax of a triumphal tour through Italy, in the course of which he was made a member of the Philharmonic Academies of Verona and Bologna, and was given the order of the Golden Spur by the Pope, and earned the popular title of Il Cavaliere Philharmonico. Upon his return to Salzburg, young Mozart became concertmaster at the Archiepiscopal Court, 
and partly under pressure of demands for occasional music, partly spurred on by a most extraordinary creative impulse, he turned out works of every description, ecclesiastical and secular, symphonies, sonatas, quartets, concertos, serenades, etc., etc. He had written no less than 288 compositions, according to the latest enumeration, when at the age of 21 he was driven, by the insufferable conditions of his servitude, to take his departure from home and seek his fortune in the world. This event marked the period of his artistic adolescence. Accompanied by his mother, he went over much of the ground covered during his journey as a prodigy, but where before there was universal acclaim, he now met utter indifference, professional opposition and intrigue and general lack of appreciation. However futile in a material sense, this broadening of his artistic horizon was of inestimable value to the ripening genius. While equally sensitive to impressions as before, he no longer merely imitated, but caught the essence of what he heard, and welded it, by the power of his own genius, into a new and infinitely superior musical idiom. Now, for the first time, he rises to the heights, to the exalted beauty of expression which has given his works their lasting value, already in the fullness of his technical power, equipped with the musicianship which enabled him to turn to account every hint, every suggestion, this virtuoso in creation no less than execution, fairly drank in the gospel of classicism. Mannheim became a new world to him, but in his very exploration of it he left the indelible footprints of his own inspiration. If he met the Mannheim musicians on an equal footing, it followed that he could approach those of Paris with a certain satirical condescension. But if his genius was recognized, professional intrigue prevented his drawing any profit from it. He was reduced to teaching and catering to patronage in the most absurd ways, from writing a concerto for harp and flute, both of which he detested, to providing ballets for Novaire, the all-powerful dancer of the Paris opera. His adaptability to circumstances was extraordinary, but all to no avail. The total result of his endeavours was the commission to write a symphony for the Concert Spirituel then conducted by Le Gros. Nowhere else has he shown his power of adaptability in the same measure as in this so-called Paris symphony. It is, as Mr. Hadot says, perhaps the only piece of occasional music that is truly classic. The circumstances of its creation appear to us ridiculous, but are indicative of the musical intelligence of Paris at this time. The premier coup d'archer the first attack was a point of pride with the Paris orchestra, hence the piece had to begin with all the instruments at once, which feat, as soon as accomplished, promptly elicited loud applause. What a fuss they make about that, wrote Mozart. In the devil's name I see no difference. They just begin all together as they do elsewhere. It's quite ludicrous. Unquote. For the same reason, the last movement of the Paris symphony begins with a unison passage, piano, which was greeted with a hush but directly the forte began they took to clapping unquote. referring to the passage in the first allegro the composer says quote, i knew it would make an effect so i brought it in again at the end da capo and despite those prosaic calculations the symphony has not an unworthy bar in it and it was one of the most successful works played at these famous concerts Yet Paris held out no permanent hope to Mozart, and he was forced to return to service in Salzburg under slightly improved circumstances. It is nothing short of tragic to see how the young artist vainly resisted this dreaded renewal of tyranny, and finally yielded out of love for his father. His liberation came with the order to write a new opera, Idomeneo, 
from Munich in 1781. This work constitutes the transition from adolescence to maturity. It is the last of his operas to follow absolutely the precedence of the Italian opera seria, and its success definitely determined the course of his artistic career. In the same year he severed his connection with the Salzburg court, but not until driven to desperation and humiliated beyond words, settled in Vienna and secured in a measure the protection of the emperor. But for his livelihood he had for a long time to depend upon concerts, until a propitious circumstance opened a new avenue for the exercise of his talents. Meantime he had experienced a new revelation. His genius had been brought into contact with that of Joseph Haydn, whom he met personally at the Imperial Palace in 1781, during the festivities occasioned by the visit of Grand Duke Paul of Prussia. This master's works now became the subject of his profound study, which bore almost immediate results in his instrumental works. The propitious circumstance alluded to above lay in another direction. Joseph II had made himself the protector of the German drama in Vienna, and had given the theatre a national significance. His patriotic convictions induced him to adopt a similar course with the opera, though his own personal tastes lay clearly in the direction of Italy. At any rate, he abolished the costly, spectacular ballet and Italian opera, and instituted in their stead a national vaudeville, as the German opera was called. The theatre was opened in February 1778 with a little operetta, Die Bergknappen, by Umlauf, and this was followed by a number of operas partly translated from the Italian or French, including Röschen and Collas by Monsigny, Lucille Sylvain and Der Hausfreund by Gretry, and Anton und Antoinette by Gossek. In 1781, the emperor commissioned Mozart to contribute to the repertoire a singspiel, and a suitable libretto was found in Die Entführung aus dem Serral. It had an extraordinary success. In the flush of his triumph, Mozart married Constance Weber, sister of the singer Aloysia Weber, the erstwhile sweetheart of Mannheim. This again complicated his financial circumstances, for his wife, loyal as she was, knew nothing of household economy. Not until 1787 did Mozart secure a permanent situation at the imperial court, and then with a salary of only 800 florins, $400. Quote, too much for what I do, too little for what I could do, as he wrote across his first receipt. His duties consisted in providing dance music for the court. Gluck died in the year of Mozart's appointment, but his position with 2,000 florins was not offered to Mozart. To the end of his days he had to endure pecuniary difficulties and even misery. Intrigue of Italian colleagues, with Salieri, Gluck's pupil at their head, moreover placed constant difficulties in Mozart's way, and when in 1785 his marriage of Figaro was brought out in Vienna, it came near being a total failure because of the purposely bad work of the Italian singers. But at Prague, shortly after, the opera aroused the greatest enthusiasm, and out of gratitude Mozart wrote his next opera, Don Giovanni, for that city, 1787. In Vienna, again, it met with no success. In this same wonderful year he completed, within the course of six weeks, the three last and greatest of his symphonies. In a large measure, the composer's own character, his simple childlike and loyal nature, stood in the way of his material success, when in 1789 he undertook a journey to Berlin with Prince Lichnowsky, Frederick William II offered him the place of royal Kapellmeister with a salary of 3,000 dollars. But his patriotism would not allow him to accept it, in spite of his straitened circumstances, 
and when after his return he was induced to submit his resignation to the emperor, so that like Haydn he might seek his fortune abroad, he allowed his sentiment to get the better of him at the mere suggestion of imperial regret. The only reward for his loyalty was an order for another opera. This was Così Fantutti, performed in 1790. During his Berlin journey, Mozart had visited Leipzig and played upon the organ of St. Thomas's Church. His masterly performance there so astonished the organist Dolles that, as he said, he thought the spirit of his predecessor, Johann Sebastian Bach, had been reincarnated. It is significant how thus late in life Bach's influence opened new vistas to Mozart, for he had probably known so far only the Leipzig master's clavier compositions. It is related how, after a performance of a cantata in his honour, he was profoundly moved, and spreading the parts out on the organ bench became immersed in deep study. The result is evident in his compositions of the last two years. During the last, 1791, he wrote La Clemenza di Tito, and another opera seria for Prague, and his last and greatest German opera, Die Zauberflöte, for Vienna. The Requiem, by some considered the crowning work of his genius, was his last effort. He did not live to finish it. He died on December 5, 1791, in abject misery, while the magic flute was being played to crowded houses night after night on the outskirts of Vienna. The profits from the work, meantime, accrued to the benefit of the manager, Schikaneder, the friend whom Mozart had helped out of difficulties by writing it. Mozart was buried in a common grave, and the spot has remained unknown to this day. Thus briefly ran the life-course of one of the greatest and without question the most gifted of musicians the world has seen. Within the short space of thirty-six years he was able to produce an almost countless series of works, the best of which still beguile us after a century and a half into unqualified admiration. They have lost none of their freshness and vitality, and it is even safe to say that they are better appreciated now than in Mozart's own day. The tender, fragrant loveliness of his melodies, the caressing grace of his cadences, will always remain irresistible. In sheer beauty, in pure musical essence, we shall not go beyond them. Much might be said of the eternal influence of Mozart on the latter-day disciples. We need only call to mind Weber, Brahms, Tchaikovsky and Richard Strauss, whose own work is a frank and worthy tribute to his memory. It has been said that Mozart's is the only music sufficient unto itself, requiring no elucidation, no program, whatever. Hence its appeal is the most immediate as well as the most general. It has that impersonal charm which contrives to ingratiate itself with personalities ever so remote, and to accommodate itself to every mood. Yet a profoundly human character lies at the bottom of it all, Mozart, the simple, childlike, ingenuous, and generous, or Mozart, the witty, full of abandon, of frank drollery and good humor. With what fortitude he bore poignant grief and incessant disappointment. How he submitted to indignities for the sake of others is well known. But every attack upon his artistic integrity he met with stern reproof, and through trial and misery he held steadfast to his ideal as an artist. To Hofmeister, the publisher, Demanding more saleable music, he writes that he prefers to starve. Schikaneder, successful in making the master's talent subserve his own ends, gets no concession to the low taste of his motley audience. Inspired with the divinity of his mission, he subordinates his own welfare to that one end, and he breathes his last in the feverish labor over his final great task, the requiem, his own requiem, as he predicted. End of section 7 
read by Sandra.